Our scripture this morning is from Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 10. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice, This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly when they looked around, they saw no one with them any more, but only Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead could mean. These are our sacred stories. Thanks be to God. Good morning, and welcome to Evolution Sunday. One of my very first Sundays at Covenant was an Evolution Sunday. Prior to vet school, I wrote my philosophy master's thesis on Charles Darwin and classical American philosophy, William James and John Dewey especially, and how their writings and views of the world were impacted by Darwin's theory of evolution. So when I happened into a church that took time to celebrate evolution each year, I was pretty well hooked. We, along with many other communities of faith, celebrate Evolution Weekend in an effort to seriously consider the interplay between religion and science and to investigate the ways in which both of these disciplines might push one another on toward more excellence. My hope today is to convince you that taking Darwin and evolution and science and scientific thinking seriously is just about the best way that we have as humans to move forward into a world that has more justice and more love, more compassion, and more peace. In short, I want to argue that scientific thinking is the best way to achieve a better spiritual and communal world. Now, I know that we covenant folks are a little averse to being told what to think, how to think, or that one position is best. Open pulpit, open pew. And I know that we don't always agree on the, the particulars of better or worse applied broadly. But I do believe that we share a desire for more care and justice and equity in the world, for a healthier planet, and for deep spiritual contentment. My argument today is that we have available to us a method for achieving those ends, and that moving forward without it inevitably results in inequity, abuse, and destruction. Here comes the big statement. The best way that we humans have to achieve knowledge, an understanding of what is true within and about the world is the scientific method. But before all of you writers and poets and theologians and empaths drop this video completely, be assured that I'm not excluding everything except the hard sciences from the honest pursuit of truth. 
I simply want to propose that the scientific method and our ability to think scientifically is a necessary skill for us to have in order to possess truth, to possess it and recognize it in the world. It may not be completely sufficient, but without it, we are lost. Let me clarify what I mean by the scientific method. It's not an orderly series of steps, hypothesis, to experiment design, to methods, to results, to discussion, to conclusion. Rather, to use the scientific method is to propose an idea about the world based on the best factual evidence available. And then, and this is the critical component, to subject that idea to evaluation. Ideas certainly have creative, intuitive sparks, but they aren't plucked from the ether with nothing to support them. Ideas are the interplay between data and imagination. And if the idea breaks with the first challenge, it's unlikely to be telling us something true about the world. But if the idea holds up against scrutiny, if new data fits within its system, if it helps predict future patterns or behaviors or outcomes, it usually means that we've identified something real and essential about the world. If I haven't convinced you yet, let's consider some of the other non-scientific methods available in the pursuit of knowledge. Divine fiat. The world is the way it is because God willed it to be so. Dogma religious or otherwise. The world works the way it works because the group decided to adhere to a fixed creed. Pseudoscience. Take a little biology or a little chemistry or a little psychology, but bend its conclusions so that they support a previously chosen assertion. The common thread in all of these is actually a lack of bravery and curiosity especially when the conclusions reached are unpleasant or inconvenient or even terrifying. It's an unwillingness to assume that one might be wrong, that cherished ideas might be incomplete or inaccurate. Evolutionary biology, Darwin's wheelhouse, wrestles with these tensions all the time. Let's look at one example together. In 1859, Charles Darwin published On the Origin of Species, essentially arguing that life represented, excuse me, essentially arguing that the life represented on the planet came about through a long, slow process of change over time. Random variations would arise, some of which made survival easier for the organism, some of which made it harder. Those variations that made life easier would persist. For those that did not, extinction. Over the next century, a good portion of evolutionary biology was devoted to finding evidence of this theory. The best evidence, of course, would consist of a series of fossils demonstrating gradual changes over time, eventually changing from one species to another. Certainly, some of this fossilized evidence exists and has been studied, 
But many scientists have been frustrated with a fossilized record that frequently showed jumps from one species to another, missing many or all of the gradations between. Some conservative Christians have rushed to use, to use this incomplete fossil record to argue that evolutionary theory is misguided or even an affront to their religious beliefs about the role of the divine in the creation of the earth. But curious scientists don't ignore problems or toss entire systems of thought when challenges arise. Rather, they keep looking at the evidence. They question the parts that don't fit and they find new ways of explaining things that once seemed mysterious. Some evolutionary biologists, countering the conservative Christian claim, urged patience, arguing that the fossil record would, in time, demonstrate gradual change. We haven't found it yet, but hang on, we're getting there. Some even went to great lengths to describe all of the various challenges that creating a fossil in the first place faces, stressing that the lack of fossil evidence was more due to happenstance than a problem with the original Darwinian theory of evolution. But in 1972, Stephen Jay Gould and Niles Eldridge, looking at all of the fossil record available and all of the work that had been done um, around that record, postulated that maybe rather than progressing gradually, evolutionary change occurred in rapid bursts. Instead of constantly changing, species seemed to kind of remain pretty stable for eons and eons and eons until something dramatic happened. An earthquake might open up a ravine, cleaving a population in two. The different environments that resulted would place different pressures on the species, eventually evolving two species from one. Yep, this last, bit, this last bit might take thousands of years, but in the scope of evolutionary time, it's lightning fast. Gould and Eldridge referred to their theory as punctuated equilibrium, and it's been an important breakthrough in understanding speciation patterns seen in the fossil record. Punctuated equilibrium is also a powerful way to understand and predict the lightning-fast evolution, evolutionary patterns that we see currently every day on our planet in viruses. RNA viruses, of which COVID is one, is a classic example of just the sort of species that seems to sit static for a long time and then radically change in a relatively short period of time. Turning toward the theological, I wonder if anything in how I've described punctuated equilibrium feels familiar. Do you feel like the world has, at least occasionally, come unmoored from, once, from what once held it fast? That something incredibly fundamental changed in an instant? Or that the tide pool you thought you lived in simply disappeared? And that your surroundings are now unfamiliar plants, altered temperatures, rocks whose faces you have not already memorized? I think the world is very much like this. I think life is very much like this. And I don't have to look too far in the past to offer you some evidence. 
COVID, Sandy Hook in Parkland, George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, lies about election fraud and insurrection on the Capitol. Each one of these events came like a punch in the gut, completely knocking the wind out of me, laying me flat and scared and sad and broken. But there are also glorious examples of equally profound change that feel hopeful and exciting. Did you see the Event Horizon telescope image of a black hole? Did you notice how fast scientists figured out how to test for COVID and develop effective vaccines for it? I know you watched as thousands of people gathered in the streets to protest police brutality. I know many of you were there. The world is no less different after these triumphs than after our failures. The degree of difference can be just as shocking. New possibilities have opened. Life just doesn't seem to follow predictable or even gradual paths moving gently from one slope to another. Rather, it radically leaps in fits and starts, always unpredictable. Sometimes the leaps are glorious and sometimes they're terrible. But so often they just upend the foundations on which we rest. What punctuated equilibrium reminds us is this. The leaps are normal, even if they're not always desired. They just happen. The resulting disorientation is an expected part of the human experience. It's a byproduct of how the world works. Of course, we hate disorientation. We hate it so much. We come up with mythologies and religions and practices to help reduce this unpleasant sensation. We tell ourselves that God is in control and all things work together for good and everything happens for a reason. We try to assuage our collective pain. And although I truly believe that any effort to reach out with love and compassion and care is noble, when the platitudes that we create start being held as capital T true, we have now moved far away from living in harmony with our scientific world. Recall what science gives us. It gives us a system by which we can describe what has already happened, how it happened, and what we might realistically expect going forward. But most importantly, it gives us a system that, with, that has built within it the expectation of and procedures for continuous re-evaluation, re-examination, refinement, corroboration, or rejection. When we forego this way of thinking, replacing it instead with fiat or dogma, pseudoscience, entertaining conspiracy theories, 
or just despair. We're choosing fantasy over reality and we're missing so, so much opportunity to deepen our very finite, very unique experience of the wonder that is Homo sapiens sapiens. At the risk of getting on too hot a horse and too slippery a soapbox, I would also suggest that the unique brand of white evangelical Christianity that's currently front and center in our popular culture is not only missing this opportunity, but doing an incredibly gross disservice to the teachings of Rabbi Jesus. In so many of these circles, Christianity is nothing more than white nationalism seeking to maintain and grow its own power. And I, for one, am deeply pessimistic that there is a path back to shared community for many of its adherents because of this. The white evangelical church has, for decades, taught its members to reject science in favor of fiat. They've taught their children that intellectualism is a tool of the elite, a tool to pull the faithful away from the Bible. For how else can bushes burn without crumbling to ash, and days old bodies rise to walk again, unless science is ranked below the scriptures? If you tell people that their eyes and their ears and their bodies and their logical brains cannot be trusted long enough, they will believe you. They will stop pursuing science, they will stop thinking critically, and they will be fodder for any charlatan who offers an easy explanation for their pain and a seductive promise for how to restore their security and joy. This is not who we are. This is not who we want to become. So what then do we do? I would suggest the following guiding principles. Number one, we should think like scientists, always. Number two, we should teach our children to think like scientists, critically. Teach them the tools they need to be able to identify fact from fiction. We should remember that swift change and disorientation is normal. It doesn't mean it's always pleasant, but it is normal. And we're not alone in our distress or in our joy. And number four, we should remember that we Homo sapiens sapiens are the most powerful agents of evolutionary change on the planet. And we should use that power in a fierce effort to help protect our planet and our people. To my mind, these principles are not unlike much of what the best parts of Christianity have given me. Think like a scientist sounds a lot like Matthew 7, in which we are warned against wolves in sheep's clothing and trees bearing evil fruit. Teaching children to think critically is not so different than admonitions in Ephesians 4, in which we are reminded that without wisdom, we will be buffeted about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. Ecclesiastes reminds us that life is unpredictable, 
And I would suggest that our sacred stories are replete with examples of people risking life, security, societal position to be of help, aid, and comfort to someone else. What science does not do, what it explicitly excludes, is teleology. Teleology says that things happen because they're meant to happen in a certain way. Teleology says that species evolve because they want to survive. Teleology is in conflict with proximate causation, the idea that things happen because something else happened before and that before thing happened because something else happened before, and so on. Science doesn't presume ultimate intention. Science discovers cause and effect. Science doesn't rush in to comfort our disorientation. Science seeks to understand how that disorientation has come to be. Science is patient and, at its best, relentless in discovery, opening possibilities for new understanding and new existence. Science is dogged and hopeful and honest. Our faith should be that way too. This is how we bring love and justice into the world. This is how we heal our planet. This is how we experience our humanity to the fullest. This is how we live our Christianity as scientists. Amen.